All right, everybody. Well, welcome to the third episode of the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. You can also uh, find the Flashpoint, the print version, at owenhiggins.substack.com. That's E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S.substack.com. So, uh, having said that, today we're going to talk about student loans. And this is a somewhat important story because the federal government has announced that they are going to end the moratorium on paying back loans uh, at the end of January, January 31st, 2022, uh, which I believe means that people will then uh, be required to pay starting on February 1st. You know, this has generated a lot of anger and upset from people who have gotten used to not having to pay these loans that have what I think at least are, you know, somewhat predatory interest rates and, and kind of, you know, uh, treat the, treat the, uh, the student, as as if they were, you know, some, something of a debtor in, in in a way that I think is somewhat inappropriate. Uh, now, having um, having said that, there are some different opinions on this, and I think that we are are going to hear some of that. I I'm hoping that we are going to also hear from some people about their stories. Um, at my newsletter, I have spoken to a few people over the last couple months about their uh, experiences in having to pay back the loans and what that kind of stuff, uh, what those payments have done to their finances. Now, these are, of course, somewhat self-selected. They are social media connections of mine who have talked to me about this. So obviously if they're coming into this, they are approaching it from a perspective that probably rejects the idea of paying back student loans in the first place, which I'm certainly sympathetic to. Uh, but you know, these stories are, are, are pretty bad. Um, they're, Let's see. So there's Kay, who went to, and this is from a story I wrote in in October. She went to Wake Technical Community College in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, in the early 2000s, but she had to leave early. She now does not have a degree, but she is tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Uh, she told me, uh, quote, I am six credits off of two separate degrees and currently $65,000 in student loan debt. I can't pay because it trashed my credit score. The way that Kay explained this to me is that as, as the loan, as, as, the, as the interest interest kept piling up and the loan got bigger and bigger and she wasn't able to keep up with it, it just kind of spiraled into the rest of her life. And, and she told me that she's unable to rent a place, that she's currently homeless. And she... Um, she traces all of this back to listening to bad financial advice and getting student loans. There's, sorry, give me one sec here. 
Danielle Cross, who went to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. Um, she said that her loans have gone from around 20,000 to over 40,000 because of interest. Every payment I have done has done absolutely nothing. It's so unbelievably disheartening when you try to do the right thing and it ends up so, so wrong. All right, so I have George Pierce here. So George is a global macro strategist at the Spoke Investment Group. He also writes a column at Business Insider focused on markets, economics, and political economy. We're also friends outside of our professional lives, uh, and he was kind enough to join me. And George has, uh, I think, a really great perspective on this stuff. He is an expert on, on finances. Um, and so I thought that I would just kind of let you kind of talk about this a little bit and, and give your perspective, and then, and then I'll, I'll ask you a couple of questions. Yeah, for sure. And, and thanks for having me on. And um, I think the first thing I would say is um, it's really important to understand like the difference between the average person's outcome or the typical person's outcome with a student loan and some of the worst outcomes that people have. Um, these are very, very different things. And that's by design. Um, the system is designed to push downside risk from borrowing to the individual, um, not as much as other forms of credit, but certainly compared to, for instance, just um, having government subsidies for colleges, um, student loans are designed to put more at risk for the person doing the borrowing. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about some aggregates and I'm going to talk about some sort of typical outcomes and I'm going to talk about, you know, some outliers. And it's just really important to understand that, um, you know, we can have really good, honestly, outcomes on average for people and still have a system that creates really horrible outcomes for, for a smaller subgroup of people, um, often through no fault of their own. Um, and so I just, I just want to give that sort of disclaimer. I'm not here to be like, actually, student loans are great and here's why. Um, but I do think um, there's some context needed in terms of um, what, how people can get into trouble. Um, again, not not always or not even typically necessarily through their own decision making, but by virtue of the way the system is set up. And I think there are some parallels to other um, parts of American society. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. So, 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 so just, yeah. just, just before you uh, uh, get, you know, kind of get going on, on, on this, can you, can you just explain in, in, in very, very simple terms, what you mean about the risk getting, um, push to the individual? Yeah, totally. So if um, I think it sort of helps to think about like two very extreme different examples. So in example one, um, we have the system we currently have where there are some subsidies for students, but um, most of the cost of attending college is pushed onto the family of the student or the student themselves. And they can finance that out of pocket. They can finance that through earnings at work. They can finance that through debt. There's a number of different options there. Um, but basically, the cost of attending college is on the individual attending college in one way or another. Another system might be, well, you know, we think as a society, it makes sense to make sure lots of people have access to education, and we don't want people to be put at risk by that access to education by taking on debt. So 
what we'll do is we'll subsidize their attendance to college. Um, so the federal government will pay colleges per student that attends or something like that. And so, so there's these sort of two different extreme examples. In one example, like let's say you, you get sick or you get injured or someone in your family passes away. Um, if you're doing that and funding with a bunch of debt, well, now you have to cover the cost of that debt. And if you didn't actually get your degree, which is what the labor market cares about, which is what lets you earn more than you would if you had not gone to college in the first place, well, then you're going to have a really hard time covering that debt. Um, you know, there's all sorts of situations that prevent people from getting their degree. In the other example, if something bad happens to an individual and they're not able to attend college, it's not great. It's not a good outcome um, because they still don't have the degree, but now they're not saddled with that burden of debt um, or, you know, the, the loss of income or whatever to the same degree that they otherwise would be. So, you know, the system we currently have has basically been set up to push that risk of, of, of lost investment in education to the individual instead of being shouldered by society at large. Does that kind of make sense in like very simple terms? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So um, student loans are very, very large. Um, they're 10% of total debt outstanding um, held by households. Um, I think um, it's like 1.3 it's 1.3 1.4 trillion dollars is the is the total amount outstanding um almost all of that 82 percent of that is actually held by the federal government um before the global financial crisis um the federal government was not particularly involved in student lending in terms of holding actual debt um but because of disruptions in the credit markets and because of policy changes back in 2008 2009 we shifted to a model where virtually all student debt in this country is held by the federal government. And so the federal government is the one that's lending money to you and then receiving interest and receiving principal repayments back to you. Um, and I think, so I think that's important to keep in mind. This is very different from, um, for instance, a car loan where if you know you default on your car loan, you're not paying back another person in the private sector. If you're not paying back your student loan, you're not paying back the government. Um, and that creates some sort of um, strange incentives. So for instance, student loans are very, very hard to discharge during bankruptcy. Um, and for people that are unable to pay them because of, you know, the path dependence is, is what we call it, of like, you know, stuff happening along the way when you're trying to get your degree, um, that can create some really, really big problems. Um, I think it's also really important to understand that the vast majority of student debt balances are, are not actually that large. Um, so, uh, 80% of borrowers have less than $50,000 or sorry, 80% of, um, borrowed, of borrowed value is for amounts less than $50,000. So in other words, just to, to put that in sort of easier to understand language, um, if you forgave every person, um, if you forgave student debt up to $50,000 for everybody that currently has student debt, about 80% um, of the student debt would be forgiven um, in total, um, or sorry, 80% of borrowers would no longer have student debt. So um, only 20% of people that borrow, um, that have student loans have more than $50,000 in student debt. And further, um, if you start going up, you know, $200,000 or even just north of $100,000, that's only about 7.6% of total borrowers. So there's very, there's, there's relatively few people that have large volumes of um, outstanding student debt. And, and that includes people like, for instance, that have gone to medical school, that have gone to law school, um, that have, you know, very remunerative careers ahead of them and are really not 
um, likely to be to be losing or to be to be a bad credit risk for the government in terms of being able to repay those loans. Um, so, you know, I think that's important context because when we think about um, a policy solution for student debt or, or coming up with a more equitable system, I think it's just important to keep in mind that for most people, um, the, the problems of student debt are not these extraordinarily large number balances, but are in fact much more like quotidian day-to-day -day kind of concerns. Um, if you're somebody that spent $20,000 um, to get an associate's degree that you didn't finish, that's a really, really big problem, um, even if the actual dollar amounts aren't that large. And there's a lot more of those people than there are that took out, you know, six-figure student debt um, balances and are having trouble managing those now. Um, so, you know, again, none of this is to like say that one group of people is is more deserving or less deserving or one, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, there, there's some um, thing that, that um, we, we shouldn't care about people with high student debt balances. Um, but I do think if you're talking about um, helping the most amount of people, the numbers here are actually not extraordinarily large. And the circumstances that got people into those, into those problems are likely not going to be very similar to the people that have the sort of very, very large student loan balances that, that they're struggling with. Um, yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it does. And I think that, um, you know, most of the people who I've spoken to doing my reporting on this have have certainly talked about what you're referring to, which is this kind of, you know, just feeling like you're trapped by these payments, even, even though they're not, as you say, uh, they're not these astronomical balances, but it doesn't matter because it's really all relative to your income and, and, and to your your expenses. And so people do get stuck uh, in these situations. And yeah, I, I, I guess I would be kind of curious as to, um, you know, when, when I hear about people who have these balances and, and they just, you know, there, there was this viral video. I don't know if you remember this. I think it was, I think it was last year or maybe, maybe two years ago of this woman who she was, she was uh, showing her balance is saying what she had um, saying what she had borrowed. And then she showed what she still owed. And it was more than what she, than what she had originally borrowed, even though she had paid off like 10 or $15,000 already in the interest. And yeah, I was just kind of wondering uh, if, if you could explain how that kind of works, the compounding interest and, and because it does seem like yeah. that is a real problem for, for a lot of borrowers. Yeah, and, and um, we can talk about um, solutions to this or, or sort of how to better educate um, toward, you know, take a positive um, takeaway from this as well. But just starting out with, with how does this happen where I've made all my payments and yet my balance is higher now than the amount I took out to go to college. So there's two things going on here. Um, the first thing that's important to understand is that an income-based repayment plan where you, your payments are capped at a percentage of your income. Um, you then have a amortization period that's much longer, so a payback period that's much, much longer, but your payments can't go any higher than a set percentage of your income. For someone that's paying back student loans that way, and for some people, this program makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I don't want to get into too many specifics about why that might be the case because people's financial situations can be different, but um, for someone in that 
situation, if they're income-based repayment, you don't care what the principal balance is because the way that program works is if you, after the amortization period, it doesn't matter how much balance is left. That's forgiven. It's gone. So, you know, for someone that is getting income-based repayment, and I'm not sure if this person in the viral video, um, Owen, was uh, was in this program, but but that that's one way you can have a what looks like this massive balance. But if you're making your payments and you do that for the whole period, then it doesn't matter what your balance is because the end balance is forgiven. So that's that's the first and the easiest explanation. It doesn't apply to as many people, um, but I think it, it's worth keeping in mind that's a possibility. The second possibility is is how um, accrual of interest works while you're in college. So when you start um, your first semester, let's say it's your, your you started in September of 2021, you've taken out a $5,000 loan uh, to help finance your tuition payment for your first, your freshman semester in college 2021. Okay. You're in, you're going to be in college for, let's assume you're doing a bachelor's degree four years and you've already borrowed $5,000. Well, you don't have to pay anything on that $5,000 that you've borrowed. In fact, you don't have to pay anything on it until a year after you graduate. But during that period, interest is what's doing what, what's called accruing. So you're being charged interest for each um, period that you don't start paying that interest starting as soon as you borrow the money. What that what happens with student loans is when you start repaying, you convert you that that interest stops accruing and you you have a fixed monthly payment that amortizes over 10 years so that that balance of interest that has been accruing in an accounting an accounting sense but hasn't been cash out of your pocket yet that converts to a new principal payment so um for instance if i was to borrow five thousand dollars and not repay any of it over the next five years um my balance would be uh, $7,600 uh, five years from now that I now have to pay down. Obviously, not every dollar that you borrow to go to college is going to have that much um, um, accrued interest when you start when you enter repayment because you're getting closer and closer to your repayment starting up as you move through college. But that $7,600 is obviously a a lot bigger. Um, you know, if you're, I just assumed a 5% interest rate for that. But if, if you, if, if you um, compare that to $5,000, it looks totally ridiculous because it, it's a much larger number. It's just a function of making sure that after the money goes out the door, that the lender, in this case, the federal government is receiving um, compensation for lending you that money. Now, you know, I, I, I think all that is to say, not that, oh, well, this is the way it has to be, or it's the only way it sh should be, or that this is definitely like the best way the system can be. Um, I'm just sort of explaining how the accounting works as opposed to um, making a general defense of why that account. No, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I just want to say, I saw there was one person in the call queue. Uh, they're, they're out of it now, but um, those of you that want to join the conversation, you can get in the queue now, but um, probably going to talk for about. 10 more minutes here and then and we'll start. I know Chelsea uh, was thinking about joining us. So um, yeah, if you guys want to get in the call queue or you can wait until it's, it's either way is fine. So, yeah. So George, um, you know, I kind of wanted to just before we get to like the kind of the solutions and, and the more positive takeaway, let's talk about something else that's bad, uh, which is the, the kind of the, the political decision making that's behind this, I think, is something that really needs to be addressed right now with 
the president's party is headed into, you know, what's probably going to be some pretty tough midterms. And this is the time that he is choosing to restart these payments. Uh, that seems like a mistake to me, especially considering that this program has been broadly popular and, you know, that voters, you know, much prefer not having to pay back loans and student loans obviously don't affect the entire population, but they do, they do uh, affect a portion of the population that is more likely to vote. So what's your kind of perspective on that? And, and, and I know that, I know that, you know, finance is your thing and, and, and obviously you know about politics, but, you know, just, just from your perspective, what, what do you think about that decision politically? And, and do you think that politics should even have anything to do with this decision? Well, I'll answer the second um, part first, because I think it's, it's much easier to answer. Um, politics is, has something to do with everything that we, that we do. Our society is steeped in it. Um, there is no way to avoid that. Um, we have to find a way to live together. We're a country of more than 300 million people with a lot of different perspectives about the world. And politics is how we resolve those differences. And, you know, that sometimes creates some really good outcomes and sometimes it creates some horrific outcomes. Um, it's just a reality of the world we live in. Um, what the politics look like is look like is not fixed, but this is always going to be, in my opinion, I, I don't see how you can get away from it being a political decision in some form or fashion for the better or for the worse. Um, so I, I think that part's easy to answer. Uh, you know, what the Biden administration's calculation is here, I, I don't particularly understand. I mean, I, I think one thing that's definitely true about um, the the modern political economy is that um, whatever one party does, and you know, um, I think this is true both ways. And we saw this during the Trump administration. You during the Trump administration, this was called Trump derangement syndrome, where you know anything that the that Trump did, and I'm I'm not defending anything or saying anything specific here, but anything was was viewed as this horrific, awful thing. But when Democrats come in, okay, well, you know, now we're gonna look at it a different way. Um, you know, both parties have incentives to paint the other party as um, doing the worst possible thing. Um, so when you come upon controversial decisions, and there are a litany of them, um, student loans are just one example there, you know, we could talk about the Supreme Court, we could talk about um, fiscal stimulus, we could talk about monetary policy, we could talk about any number of things. Um, there is a reaction, there, there's an there's an impulse from a certain corner of our politics to want to try and like find what the median voter would want when you know I, I think the the lived experience of the last 10 maybe 15 years you could possibly go back all the way to the Republican Revolution of 1994 um, when um, they swept into the house um, the the lived experience of our politics is that you're going to get raked across the coals no matter what you do um, the median voter doesn't really exist and you know it, it, it's not really um, a good strategy to try and triangulate. Now, I mean, that's my take. I'm not some political genius or, or political strategist. I just try and describe the world as I see it as best I can. And, and that, I think, is what's going on. So if you adopt that framework, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to start hitting bank accounts for hundreds of dollars a month um, from you know the millions of student loan borrowers who are very likely part of your political base um, in a midterm year. Yeah, uh, d definitely agreed. So, what what should what should borrowers be thinking now? What should borrowers be 
what kind of approach should borrowers be taking uh, toward this looming deadline? I mean, I know, as I said at the top, I, I'm, I'm personally, I mean, I'm so angry about, about this that, that I feel like I don't want to pay at all. And I know that there's been talk about a student debt strike, uh, which, which is, I think, it, I, I don't think that it's at a, a level of like real seriousness at this point. Um, but I don't think that it's at a point of unseriousness either, if that makes sense. I mean, I think that, I think that if a couple things broke the right way, you, you, you could see people just deciding to default as a political protest, as a political action. Um, obviously, there are a lot of reasons why doing that is a bad idea. Uh, but what, what's, what, what, what kind of advice would you give to, you know, the median, uh, borrower who's, you know, making an average salary and, and kind of like staring down the barrel of, of having a few hundred dollars to $500, uh, of a bill that's going to pop back up. Um, I mean, like, I guess I'll, I'll, that's part of the question. And then I think the first part of the question would be, um, do you think that there is any space for just not paying for, for doing a kind of So, I mean, I think the first thing that's most important for anybody that has not, I mean, I actually, I, I just as a personal anecdote here, I didn't even realize my student loans weren't being I, I my student loan payment wasn't coming out of my bank account until about nine months into 2020 um which i realize is an incredibly privileged position to be in to be like oh i just didn't notice that um but you know i, I think that speaks to a lot of people might not be really keeping a close track on this stuff um just because everyone's busy i mean no one wants to be running over their bank account every moment of the day so the most important thing you can do as someone that might be entering um, repayment is understand like what's that payment going to be um, when it comes when it when it starts hitting again um, you know can you fit that into your finances and for I you know I, I it's hard to come up with a specific number here but I, I feel comfortable in saying the strong majority of student loan borrowers that payment is something they can manage it is not something that's going to put them you know out of an apartment um, you know or prevent them from buying groceries. There are people like that for sure. Um, and um, for those people or for, for folks that, you know, are financially tight right now, um, you know, you don't have a lot of good options, honestly. Um, you know, if you go to studentaid.gov and to, to look at what happened, you know, to, to look, look like, how do I get um, how do I deal with this if I'm delinquent or if I'm falling into um, delinquency? The first thing they do is they remind you, like, this is a huge, like, negative thing for your credit. This is going to be, this is going to make your life a lot harder. Um, you know, this is a big problem. The, the response is not like, oh, how do we make sure that you, um, you know, do the best that you can and like how do we how do we channel you into paying what you're able to or maybe consolidating loans or whatever their first instinct is like this is a big problem and like you shouldn't do this um you know and so look i with regards to what a student debt strike just you know lots and lots of people just voluntarily refusing to repay um student loans would look like i honestly don't know i think that would be a fascinating development and very different from how 
a lot of our political economy has worked for the past 30 years or so. Um, you know, ultimately for society at large, um, it's hard to look at that as some sort of like, it, you know, if, if this if it was banks that these that this money was being repaid to, it might be different because there could be sort of knock on consequences. But it's the federal government overwhelmingly that is collecting these loans. So, you know, if you don't pay the federal government back, the federal government's going to be fine. Right. Like the, like the, that there, there aren't really a lot of negative consequences from there. There would be negative consequences for borrowers who refuse to repay as part of a debt strike. And I think, you know, if if. Um, if that's something you're thinking about doing either voluntarily or, you know, because you're unable to repay, you need to understand what it's going to do to your ability to borrow in the future, what it's going to do to your ability to rent an apartment, buy a car. Um, you know, there's a lot of negative consequences that come with it. Um, I'm definitely not here to tell people what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to be a pleasant experience dealing with a default on a student loan. Absolutely. Well, um. I'm going, to, I'm going to invite Chelsea in now uh, to speak. And Chelsea Coombs is a voice actor and journalist. Uh, we've known each other on on Twitter for a little while, uh, and she was kind enough to come and join us. And I wanted I wanted Chelsea to kind of give her story a little bit, and then maybe we could all kind of discuss what her story says about the broader issue and and uh, yeah. So Chelsea, floor is yours. Awesome. Sorry, I had to figure out how to unmute. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. I mean, this is um, an issue that I'm pretty passionate about. Um, I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign from 2010 to 2014, graduated with a BS, um, and then I went to... NYU for grad school, um, getting an MA in science journalism. Um, you know, I have had to take on a lot of student debt. Um, my parents had to take on quite a lot of student debt for me with the Parent PLUS loans when I was an undergraduate. Um, thankfully, my dad, because of um, Agent Orange exposure in uh, Thailand, he became 100% disabled, according to the government. So um, the loans that they had taken out on my behalf were actually dispersed. Um, but I currently have um, $82,000 in student loan debt from both my undergraduate and graduate degrees. Um, you know, it's it's very frustrating that we I've been paying for you know, quite some time now since 2016, and I've paid $13,000 in interest and $4,600 in principal. Um, but I still have all of this money that is due. Um, and I feel like I can never really catch up with it. You know, when the federal government first started um, freezing the payments as well as, you know, the interest rate, I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to be a great opportunity for me to pay down my interest that I have and then, you know, really start fresh. Um, and so I did that. I've paid down all of my interest, but I'm terrified that when things restart in January, first of all, I'm terrified about how I'm going to pay it. Um, I'm on an income-based repayment program, but I also live in New York City. Um, you know, how they do the calculations, um, you know, may not take that into account. 
Um, so that's something I'm really worried about. And I'm also worried about the interest spiking again, because, you know, I'm totally fine paying back what I owe. Um, but the fact that the government is taking more of that money from me, um, it really, it really is frustrating. And um, I know Georgia talked a little bit about um, at the end of that income-based repayment program, how you're able to have that debt forgiven. Um, but, you know, it, it's frustrating that, that that money then is considered income and it's added to your federal income taxes. So at the end of that, you know, if I still have, you know, $20,000 even of, um, you know, debt that is forgiven by the federal government, I'm then adding that to my own, you know, tax burden. And I'm afraid of how I'm even going to pay that. So, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people are really thinking about and are worried about. And, um, you know, I'm in a much more privileged position than most people. Um, but again, you know, an extra $600 out of my bank account, I could be, you know, spending that and, you know, stimulating the economy as, you know, everybody would like to be happening right now. So I guess it's just something that's been very frustrating to me that, you know, a, Democratic administration with a Democratic Congress has not really had the political courage to do much about this issue. Sure. And yeah, George, I'd like to get your uh, your perspective on that, especially with the the way that the Chelsea's interest payments, you know, uh, 13,000 plus, you know, against the 4,600 that she's paid off. How does that happen exactly? I mean, like, how, how is it that um, that we see those kind of payments, even in an income-based repayment plan, that, that the principal isn't really being touched? Is that just the way that the loan works? I mean, you know, you, uh, we're talking about it being part of the federal government. So well, yeah, it seems yeah. predatory so, to me. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. So um, two things, just before I talk about amortization and principal versus interest payments, um, Chelsea, you raised a great point about how the forgiven debt at the end of an income-based repayment program is treated as taxable income. Um, it is complete lunacy that that's, there is no defense for that tax treatment to be the case for, for um, student loans specifically and, and federal government loans from the federal government specifically. Um, in the private sector, if I was to go and loan Owen like $10,000 and then just say, oops, I guess I forgave the loan. Well, that's essentially income for Owen, right? So the government wants to treat that as income. So it makes sense in private lending for forgiven debt to be treated as um, a uh, as as a source of income to a point. Well, we'll you know, there, there are sort of some, some specific examples where that doesn't make a case, but where the federal, that, that, that isn't the case, but when the federal government is the one doing the lending and doing the forgiving, it makes no sense whatsoever for them to then collect taxes on the forgiven debt at the end. So like Chelsea, on that point, I like, I, there is no defense for why that is the way that works. And it's really frustrating that it hasn't been fixed and it needs to be fixed. And I, I'm, it, yeah, it sucks. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Um, okay. So Amortizing debt. So student loans in general and income-based repayment is a little bit different. I'm just going to use a pretty simple example from like a 10-year loan. Um, if, if you go out and borrow for 10 years with an amortizing debt schedule, what that means is the dollar amount of your payment is never going to change. It's always going to be, let's use the example of $500 a month. 
at the start of your repayment window. So in the first year to three years, maybe most of that print or most of that payment every month is going to pay off the interest on the remaining balance. A small chunk of it is going to reduce the principal. Over time, the principal comes down to the point where that same dollar amount you pay every month increases the amount of principal you're paying off every month and amortizes, basically kills off the principal faster. So by the end, by the time you make your last payment, you are now paying almost zero interest and almost entirely principal. So for someone that's relatively close to the start of their amortization period, and it's going to depend on, on what kind of loan you have, what your amortization period is. For instance, my student loans when I went to college were all 10 years straight line amortization. What, I graduated in 2012. They're now almost most of my monthly payments on my student loans that are still out, outstanding are going almost entirely to principal balance. There's very little interest attached because the, the monthly payment hasn't changed, but the balance that interest is being charged against has slowly worn down over time and that process is now accelerating. If you have income-based loans, you probably have a much longer amortization period, um, you know, 30 years in some cases as opposed to 10. Um, and so that's why you're sort of, you're, you're paying the, that payment every month a lot of it is going in interest and it feels like you're making very little headway. The way student loans are designed to amortize over time, you will make headway if you keep making the payments. Now, of course, making the payments can be very hard. And as you pointed out, the income-based repayment system doesn't do a good job adjusting for things like cost of living where you live. Um, so it's not a perfect system by any means um, and, and really quite the opposite. But the good thing is that, you know, at least if your income does drop for whatever reason, um, there is some play there in, in how you're able to repay the loans as opposed to just having to come up with that same dollar amount every month um, under a traditional structure like the one that that I have. Um, does that kind of help explain a little bit? Um, I can go into more detail or, or go through that more. I don't know. I, I, I spend all day looking at Excel and doing this kind of thing for my job. So if I go, if I go through it too quickly or not in enough detail, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, for me, I, sorry, um, I don't know if you want to uh, add things there, but for me, that's really helpful to know. Um, I feel like the government doesn't do a great job of letting us know that's exactly what happens because, you know, I truly, it, you know, I'll make like a $500 payment and like $20 might go to the principal. Um, and it's really frustrating to me, um, you know, seeing that because I'm like, I do want to repay my student loans. Like there's... I'm not trying to, you know, skirt responsibility, like some people might say. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it is kind of frustrating to me seeing that every month, especially knowing that Congress, um, you know, they're the people who are making those interest rates. You know, I think um, when before all of this happened, and there was the freeze, I think my average interest rate was something like 8%, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you see kind of the rates that the government is able to borrow money. Um, maybe I'm um, off base with there, but um, you know, I'm totally fine paying on my principal balance. It's just that interest that really kills me. I can definitely add some context around why interest rates are where they are with student loans and, and sort of what the account, why the accounting works that way. And there are some, Good reasons for it and some really, really bad ones. So before COVID hit, the default rate on student loans was was very high. Um, so 
you know, more than 10%, 10 to 12% of all student loans were 90 plus days behind um, before COVID and before the relief came through. Now that number is more like 5% of student loans. So, you know, we've seen this massive decline and, and the number of newly delinquent loans has, you know, that each quarter, um, the number, the percentage of loans that go from being on time to delinquent has gone from like 10% to like 1%. So there's been this you know, policy has has alleviated a lot of the pressure on people as you would expect it to. The reason that it's structured the way it is where um, there's a, a relatively high interest rate attached is because from the from the, the way Congress and the way the Congressional Budget Office views these sorts of programs is they when when you borrow and then there isn't a um, when that when that borrowing isn't repaid either principal or interest there's a cost associated with that there's a there's defaulted um income there and so that the way the cbo views that and the way congress views that is that's an expense that the taxpayer is paying so to to make up for the fact that some people are you know some student loans will always default and that's you know that that's how borrowing works someone someone defaults sometimes um there is this interest rate charge that is designed to cover not all but a, a good amount of the credit cost for the total borrower pool um you know there is no reason that it has to work that way right congress could say no we think that making sure people are able to make their principal payments and you know making sure that people who do have student loans are weighed down less by them is worth um, subsidizing the the credit costs, and we'll just eat the credit costs if it means that you know everyone will have a lower interest rate. And they've decided not to do that. That's that's an explicit decision by Congress um, in terms of how these programs are set up. Um, and you know it, it, it's frustrating because the the fiscal power of the United States is is very large, and um, the capacity to cover these payments is there. We just don't want to do it. And by we, I mean our representatives in Congress. I don't mean the three of us on this. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that answers the question that I was going to ask, which was, you know, why are there, why is there interest at all? Um, and I think that what you, I mean, what you're saying is a reason for it. I mean, I mean, it is the, the reason for it, whether, whether or not one agrees with it or not. It, I mean, that is why. Uh, I guess that, you know, kind of, kind of my question about it would be it, Congress could just, you know, s stop these, this interest at any time. What would that look like? And do you think that there is a way to do that that would be fair to people, you know, like Chelsea, who have paid off, you know, so much of their interests already? I mean, would this be just like a, a, a very complicated bill? Would this be a bill that would be even more complicated than just something that would just unilaterally forgive, uh, you know, up to 10,000, up to 50,000, all of that, what, you know, whatever, like it does, is, is doing something like just getting rid of the interest. Is that like just too complicated? It's not. Well, so in any given uh, policy to, you know, pass on debt, relief of some kind or another, you're going to have winners and losers, right? Um, there's no way to avoid that. Um, if I think the simplest way to think about it is that um, if you stop, if you, for instance, let's say, let's compare a bill that forgives principal versus comparable or versus forgiving interest. Um, the, the bill that forgives interest is going to be 
most friendly to people that were going to sort of amortize their debt over time sort of slowly and um you know uh basically pay on schedule the bill that um forgives interest is going to be most friendly to people who um or sorry least friendly to people who uh were going to pay off their student loans early which a lot of people do i mean that's that's not a super uncommon thing um so you know you're basically between those two extremes um you know i I think in terms of forgiving principal balances, again, just to, I, I said this number earlier, but 50% of borrowers have $18,000 or less. Like if you forgave, if you forgave up to $18,000, that would wipe out the student debt balances of half of people that have them. Um, if you went up to $40,000, that would be roughly three quarters. Um, and so, you know, there are relatively simple bills that you could write where you just say, okay, everybody with, you know, everyone who has a student loan balance has $40,000 deducted from that balance. And there are still going to be people who are struggling with some student debt loads that are very, very high. Um, but, um, you know, three quarters of people would no longer have student debt. Um, you know, I, I think, I think if you're going to be spending the money that's probably a cleaner way to do it than than zeroing out interest but again you know that doesn't take care of new student loan borrowers either um whereas you know having no more interest um would impact new borrowers um so for instance um I, or I, I think it's worth keeping in mind that the because of demographics because there are fewer people flowing into college and and um higher education now than there were in the mid 2000s or early 2010s the growth rate of student debt has slowed dramatically student debt balances only rose by two and a half percent um in the year ended in q3 um so the year ended in september um that's not very fast growth and so um, in a certain sense, like the, like the, the, you know, for individual people, obviously there will always be people that are going to struggle with this issue, but, um, for the country as a whole, the move out of the prime college age and prime graduate degree age for the largest generation in American history, the millennials, right? That means there's less people racking up large amounts of student debt relative to the population as a whole. The overall student debt balance is growing slower. So in a certain sense, like like the, the flow of new people into the student loan system is going to be a less pressing issue going forward than it was over the past 15 years or so, just strictly from a political economy perspective and in terms of like the number of people. That's really interesting. Um... I wasn't aware of that, that, that difference, but I, I suppose it, it makes sense. Um, I, I guess the last question, uh, that I would have for you, uh, you know, directly and then, and then I'll ask when, when you're done, if Chelsea wants to ask something too, uh, feel free, but, um, you know, is there any indication, obviously you have, a way of looking at things and you have access to uh, just kind of a different view of, of the world uh, than I do, uh, you know, looking at markets and whatnot. Do you think that there's any chance that the Biden administration just unilaterally decides to kick the can down the road another couple months or a year, you know, maybe to get through like the election or something like that? I mean, like, like save like some, another huge explosion of COVID that would like really require like another like hardcore lockdown. Do you think that there's any chance at all uh, that they decide not to do it? Or do you think that this is going to happen? 
and and people should just kind of prepare for that no matter what uh i i you know i my my i played college football and my position coach used to say never is a long time uh so i don't think i can say never like it's definitely not gonna happen but i don't see a particularly high odds that they're gonna um, let this go and you know there's all sorts of complicated political economy that goes into why that is um the uh current debate right now in policy making circles is whether inflation is too high well i mean you know leaving aside the the cost side of the equation and i'm i'm not trying to say that this is the right way to look at it but if you care a lot about inflation coming down a good way to tamp down inflation is to take a bunch of cash out of people's bank accounts um you know so you can you can frame it um frame the student loan payment restart as a effort to prevent consumer spending from continuing to run at a very, very hot pace, which, which it has, um, you know, um, now again, I'm not, I'm not defending that particular argument. In fact, I would disagree with it, but, but I think that's a defensible case. And if you look at how, um, all of the policy debates in Washington have gone over the past three to six months, um, we've trended from, we really, really need to make sure that the economy is being supported to, we really, really need to kick the economy out into the cold and the economy is doing pretty well. I mean, it's not like, oh, we're going to have a huge recession. Um, but I, I do think that, um, the, uh i don't know the 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 milieu in washington right now is very poorly set up to see an extension of this particular policy and you know again i, I i'm not here to defend that put that position but just as a question of trying to figure out what will happen i would not be betting that student loan interest and and principal payments will be will be delayed further appreciate the honesty uh for sure uh Chelsea, do you want to add anything? Um, I don't think I want to add anything. I think it'll be really interesting, you know, as millennials and Gen Z kind of come of age um, more than they already have. Obviously, <laughs> the um, oldest millennials are now like almost 40 or like in their 40s. Um, but I'd be interested to see kind of where this political debate is going to end up within the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. Um, you know, especially with, you know, it, it's interesting that Schumer is currently, you know, saying that Biden needs to forgive the loans, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm really interested to see kind of where Democrats are going to take this um in the future yeah yeah absolutely me too all right well um george i know you have a have a hard uh cap at three so i think that uh now is probably time to end it while we have a couple minutes left um so george pierks global macro strategist the bespoke investment group and also a fellow columnist at business insider he focuses on markets economics and political economy. Thanks so much, George, for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is a really, um, I mean, it's not a fun topic, but um, hopefully people learn some stuff. And um, Chelsea, thanks for sharing your perspective as well. And um, I hope the restart goes. Thank you. Yeah, and Chelsea, thank you. Chelsea is a voice actor and journalist. And I am Owen Higgins. You can find my work at eoinhiggins.substack.com and, of course, the audio version here at Colin. All right. Thanks a lot, guys, and talk to you soon.